0: My ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither or, or some, come hither all such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear, of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them, and for those who thusly need informing, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So, so cautioned, cool. audience, come with me to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 5. Joseph and the Holy Fool Once, long ago, perhaps around the 3rd century BCE, there was a monastery at Tabena in Egypt, purportedly the first Christian monastery in Egypt, because before that time, the holy folk of the country had mostly lived as hermits, and many still did. It had been established by St. Pachomius, and his sister Maria at the same time established a woman's monastery nearby. There was in that monastery among the Holy Sisters a woman named Isidora. No one could remember when she had joined them, and indeed no one cared much about her, because she was prone to fits of madness and was thought to be possessed by a demon. She was definitely a sister of the monastery, as she had been tonsured, as all of them were, but for some reason, she went about with a rag on her head, and so acquired the nickname of the monastery, Cleaning Rag. She was made to do all the worst jobs at the monastery and to eat naught but crumbs from the table, and they would hit her during her fits to make her quiet down, which was quite ineffective. Despite all this, she did not complain, and he went about her work patiently. Now in the desert lived one of the aforementioned hermits, adhering to the old ways of doing things, and this was St. Peter Peteru, who was well known for being so pious that he never left his desert isolation. One day, when he was deep in solemn prayer and meditation, an angel appeared to him. These were the old days before the nicer paintings of angels as pretty long-haired youths. So obviously the angel in question appeared as a great burning wheel in the sky covered in wings, and it spake chastising old St. Pitarum for thinking himself the greatest and most pious of hermits. Go to the monastery of a to earth, the angel told him. And there you shall find one with a crown upon their head, whose holiness was still to shame, for our hearts will be even
1: as he sit in the of his martyr.
0: Well, St. Pitarum was not one to ignore the command of an angel, so he went to the church leaders in Egypt who were very surprised to see him indeed, and he informed them of the angel's command and he, being so very old and very pious, they were minded to grant him special dispensation to leave his hermitage and go upon this odd pilgrimage to Tibana. When he reached the women's monastery, he was received with great honour by St Maria, who, upon being told of his vision, quickly brought all the holy sisters out for his inspection to see which one of them was the most holy woman the angel had referred to. As you may have guessed, he inspected every one of them, and saw upon the brow of none the crown the angel spoke of. He went to St Maria and asked whether this was truly all of the sisters, Saint Maria looked awkward and said there only remained the mad girl, but she did not know where she might be found. Saint Peterum, remembering the sort of woman who the good lord himself was normally known to associate with round about Jerusalem, nodded thoughtfully and asked for the mad girl to be brought to him. The holy sisters called for her, but she refused to answer. She was found eventually hiding beneath the table in the monastery kitchens, where she normally slept, and dragged kicking and clawing before Saint Peterum. When the saint looked upon the pitiful slattern with the rag tied around her head, he saw instead the golden crown the angel had spoken of, lighting up her thin face. He fell to his knees before her, and begged for her blessing. Isidora, as she was often wont to do, repeated back his own words to him, begging for his blessing in return. The nuns tried to explain that Isidora was quite mad, but St. Peterin replied that mad she may be, but the mad girl was above them all, and that he prayed to be found as worthy as her on the Day of Judgment. Tearfully, the other sisters confessed how dreadfully they had treated Isidora pouring the nasty leavings of food in bowls and plates over her in the kitchens, and striking her, and simply to be prayed with them also. Then, having found what he sought, he went away to meditate on humility and the angel's lesson. Unfortunately, from then on the sisters began to revere Isidora's blessed, and come to her for advice and to pray with them. She found it quite unbearable, and one day the sisters went to look under the table in the kitchens where she slept, and found that she had simply disappeared. Let us return from far off Egypt to England to the high hills of the North Yorkshire moors, resting gentle in the damp heat of late summer. An ancient foxhole courser rattles its way up a gentle incline to look outside the yellow stone of an old manor house, which is surrounded by beehives and neatly organised vegetable gardens. From a car far too small for his bulky frame emerges our old friend from previous episodes, Joe, looking a little flustered. He crosses the gravel car park and approaches the monastery, checking his watch to ensure he is on time. It appears he is, or at least close enough. There is a wiry old man with tonsured white hair, swathed in warm black robes, who has clearly been waiting for him. When he sees Joe, he opens his arms wide in welcome. Joe, is that you? Tony. You're the sight for sore eyes.
1: It's been a while since anyone's called me Tony. It's Brother Anthony now.
0: Is it? Proper holy now you are.
1: Do my best, I. The judgment of that is in the hands of God, though. Did you find it all right?
0: I'll be honest, I got lost three times on the way up. I don't know this bit of Yorkshire at all and it's dead easy to miss the road in the In the spruce
1: plantation, yes. That's where folk usually go wrong.
0: The plantation. Then come up the ridge and once I think I just got distracted by a sheep. Back of bloody nowhere.
1: <laughs> Aye. That's where you put monasteries. Nobody to bother you except the sheep. You got my email then.
0: Yeah, but it's out of the blue, but I can see why you asked for me help.
1: Oh, you used to talk a bit about some of your work you did. Back in the day when you were in the seafront, Miss in the Not much, though. only when you'd had a few.
0: I shouldn't have said anything.
1: No, you didn't say much. Enough to give me a sense of what you did, though.
0: That was a long time ago. I was still... It wasn't long since Debbie passed.
1: You still work the Punch and Judy?
0: Not a lot of interest in that these days. Only old folks' homes, Eastbourne, places like that. Mostly I do kids' parties. I work for the society. Festivals in summer sometimes. You?
1: Oh, I'm up here for good. God willing. Came for a few retreats. Decided I liked it. Show you around if you want. Give me a chance to explain everything.
0: Is that allowed?
1: Oh yes. Visitors are welcome. Get Lots of people coming for a bit of holiness.
0: Yeah, right. I've not been around a monastery before. Not one that was still working anyway. Antony led Joe through the doors of the former manor house, now monastery. Within the stone walls there was a sense of gentle peace and the sound of quiet prayers was now, where there once had been the bustle of some notable gentleman's home. Antony showed Joe through the hallway to a small chapel lit with candles. Hung not far from the altar, in pride of place on the wall, was a devotional painting of a bearded man whose robes and stole were covered in a pattern of crosses. He was holding a book and gesturing towards the observer. The picture was covered in gold, on the book and in the background and liberally on the saint's halo. The shelf beneath it was covered in candles, so I'm still burning.
1: First of all, we have our Basil the Blessed himself. This fine icon, egg tempera and gold leaf, was brought from Moscow by the founder of the monastery in 1993, and he came to build this community of our order here. St. Basil was born to humble service in the late 15th century, and became an apprentice shoemaker. As an apprentice, he exhibited the gift of prophecy, warning one of his customers of his own coming death, At sixteen he left his employment and became a holy fool, walking the streets of the city he was apprenticed, shoplifting and giving what he stole to the poor to shame the wealthy, and angering the local merchants who beat him for it. He often went naked in the colder winter and wore chains about himself. Between his madness and his true prophecies, people began to see him as a man of God. Once he was said to have told off Ivan the Terrible for not paying attention in church.
0: (laughs) How well does that go for him?
1: (laughs) Can't gone too badly. I haven't dedicated a cathedral to him. It's his feast day tomorrow, August 2nd, so we'll be celebrating at the psalm prayers and good food. At the bottom of the icon can be seen a quote from 1 Corinthians 3.19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. We at St. Basil seek to reject worldly cares and live as fools for Christ, turning the hypocrisies of the world on their head living in service to the poor and infirm. That means a weekly visit to the old folks around the area and helping out at a soup kitchen once a month in Scarborough. The rest of the time we pray, work in the gardens, look after the pigs, the goat, the lions, make our own honey in the beehives. Wait, lions? (laughs) Aye, we call them James and John. Daft, toothless old things. Used to be in the circus, but most circuses don't keep animals these days. Good thing, too. You remember what it used to be like for them? Oh, we thought it was
0: alright back then,
1: didn't we? You
0: should treat animals
1: that way. I'll take you to meet them. One of these days we'll have to start mincing the meat up them. Poor things. I mostly look after them. The Brothers think it's funny. What's funny about lions? St <laughs> um, Anthony dug up the grave of St Paul in the desert with the help of two lions. It's a very specific joke. Probably only funny to us.
0: Yeah, well I can see how that might be funny. Uh, to monks.
1: <laughs> We're holy fools, Joe all seriousness, all the time.
0: Speaking of serious, why am I here? At that, Brother Anthony's face darkened a little, and something of the mild frivolity of his nature lessened, realising he would have to explain some delicate matters.
1: Like I told you in the email, we try to keep things friendly with the folk down in the village. I do still like to pop down for a paper every now and again, and maybe a crafty Mars bar, if I'm honest. Very wholesome, the fair is here. Furthermore... I maintain it's important to know about world affairs, so we know who to pray for. So, I've got to know Mrs Atkinson the paper shop fairly well. Yesterday, I popped down and she was in tears. Because the lass had run off.
0: Kids do that sometimes.
1: Aye, they do. Hopefully she got a bus somewhere. Thing is, I reckon there might be something special about that girl. It's the shop. There's something about it.
0: Strange things happening? Stuff moving around?
1: No, it's... holy. What? It's the only way I can think of describing it. It's just a little paper shop, but it's like walking into a cathedral. Everything feels... calm. I was in a right mood the other week, and by the time I came out the shop, it was like I'd just come from prayers. People are always in there, of course.
0: You think there's something special about a girl?
1: Hi, pretty little thing. Everyone loves her. Lovely warm smile. I think it's her.
0: nice. Right. I see why you asked me then. Any idea where she went?
1: Not a clue. I was going to take you down to the village so you can investigate. It.
0: All right. Tell them I used to be a detective. Don't say what kind. Old friend of yours. He called me to help look.
1: Oh, works for me. Cup of tea first.
0: Please. I'm parched. After slaking their thirst, Antony and Joe left the calm of the monastery to take the wooded path to the village. They strolled through a sycamore-shaded alleyway out on the main street. The corner shop sat at one end, an otherwise perfectly normal establishment from the plastic sign proclaiming Everdale News to the closed-packed shelves stacked with chocolate bars, toothpaste and local baked goods. The sign today proclaimed, Closed.
1: Ah, she's still shut up. We'll have to go round the back. Round the
0: back, the gate into a yard was slightly ajar. Security rarely being a concern in Yorkshire villages where everyone knows each other and has done for years. Brother Anthony knocked at the back door, which was shortly opened by a tearfully red-faced woman in a dressing gown. Oh, Brother Anthony!
1: Hello, Beth. How are you doing? Managing, you know. This is my old mate Joe. He used to be a detective. I asked if he'd come and help look for Kayleigh.
0: Joe nodded his agreement. At that, Mrs Atkinson burst into a fresh set of tears, and muttered her thanks between sobs. Jo looked awkward, but Brother Anthony simply took Mrs Atkinson's hand, comfortingly. "'The police are looking for her! <laughs> they put it out on the radio!' From the back of the shop, someone else emerged. She was very thin and very pale and watery, and she was dressed in a shapeless floral dress that looked like it had been inherited from some elderly relative. She wore an apron and headscarf as if she had been cleaning recently— an expression of slight bemusement as if the world was a mystery she could not fathom. M- Mrs. Atkinson? Don't bother yourself, Izzy. It's just Brother Antony's friend. They're coming to help find Kayleigh. Oh, Kayleigh's run away. This caused a fresh bout of sobbing for Mrs. Atkinson. Joe and Brother Antony exchanged looks, uncertain whether they would be able to get much of any use out of the poor, distraught mother. How long has she been missing? Since yesterday afternoon. (laughs) Anything happened before that was unusual? No, she came home from school just like normal. She looked sad about something. When I asked her, she wouldn't say what it was. That's interesting. How about her friends? Any of them been asked? If they know anything, they haven't said. Any places you know she goes when she's upset? People she may run to? Not that I know of. All right. Well, if you think of anything... I'll try and think of something. I'm sorry. No, no, it's all right. Uh, We'll leave you in peace and ask around. Thank you. As it appeared they had been correct about the amount of information she could provide, Jo and Anthony quickly withdrew from the sobbing Mrs Atkinson and headed out onto the street. Poor woman, she's a mess.
1: Understandably.
0: Yeah. Is there anyone else we can ask?
1: (sighs) The school friends might be around. Dad's out somewhere looking for her.
0: Just then, sinking out from the yard, came the lanky girl from before. She quietly crept over to where Joe and Brother Anthony were heading down the street, so quietly that they did not notice her until she was practically upon them. Hi.
1: Izzy, are you looking after Mrs Atkinson? That's a good girl.
0: Mrs Atkinson's sad. There's no work in the shop for me.
1: Hi. You help out in the shop, don't you, Izzy?
0: There's a boy. Noah Stevenson. "'Nobody knows, but I saw them. "'Out the back. "'They didn't see me. "'I told Mrs Atkinson that she's crying and she didn't listen.' With those cryptic words, Izzy slipped away and back through to the Atkinson's yard and closed the gate behind her. Brother Anthony stroked his chin thoughtfully.
1: Hmm. "'The Stevenson boy. "'That's interesting. "'Why?' "'Fine family the Stevensons. "'Massive farm. "'Lots of acres.' Biggin pigs.
0: Do you know everyone's business? Told you, Joe. And take an interest. I reckon we ought to take an interest in Stephenson's.
1: Well, that'll be tricky. We won't like people taking interest. The father, not the boy. That is. I have to try when he's not around.
0: The Stevenson's farm was away out into the countryside, so Brother Anthony and Joe packed themselves into Joe's car, and headed out to the large house surrounded by outbuildings and silos and other buildings associated with the farming of pigs. They were in luck, as it happened that Mr. Stevenson was not home yet, and neither was Mrs. Stevenson. Noah, however, was, and answered the door. He was a stocky boy, with the sort of build that looked like it would later fill out into the kind of body that would have little difficulty lifting a pig in each arm. That's not home, nor is mum. Here, aren't you one of the monks from up at the hill?
1: Actually, Noah, it's you we've come to speak to. I'm Brother Anthony, and this is Joe. We've come about Kaylee Atkinson.
0: Go away, before Dad gets home.
1: Look, you're not in trouble, lad. You just want to find her. What's that? Paper. Hey, Rig. The Old Shepherd's Cottage. Thanks, Noah. We'll be off now. Another rattling
0: journey up tiny single-track roads was enforced on Joe's poor, long-suffering car, this time all the way up a long hillside to a high point above the village. This was Hayrig, and Brother Anthony was not entirely sure of his bearings this far from the village, and thus they missed at least one turn-off and found themselves having to turn around in a field when the road suddenly ran out. Eventually, though, Anthony told Joe to pull up into lay-by, before they both had to hop over a dry stone wall and cross a field to a ruined cottage, half missing its roof and overgrown with wind-blasted trees and nettles. Even in summer, it was chilly up here, and Joe wondered if he should have brought a coat. Inside the cottage, huddled in a corner underneath what remained of the roof, they found a girl wrapped in a coat, sleeping. Her face was stained with tears, which was in some way confirmatory as it meant she very clearly resembled her mother. She blearily awoke at their approach, and huddled further against the old stone walls, eyes wide.
1: Calm yourself, Kayleigh. It's only me. Who told you? Noah. Although that's all he told us. We're here to help, not drag you kicking and screaming down the hill. Your mum's going absolutely spare worrying about you.
0: I don't want to go home.
1: Aye. I can see why. Will you tell us what happened? If you want to say. If you don't, that's all right too. Me and my old mate Joe here will take you anywhere you want to go. One of your friends' houses, maybe. Brother
0: Anthony sat down on a fallen lintel, a short distance from the girl,
1: and took up a small,
0: unassuming attitude, in the manner one might try to gently coax a frightened animal to come out of its hidey hole. Joe stood back, assuming his unfamiliar presence might not be as helpful. <laughs> it was Noah's dad. He caught us behind the pig sheds. Called me names. Said all sorts of stuff about. Me nor ruin his future with village girls. How he was going to get me pregnant, told me to stay away from him.
1: <laughs> you poor lass.
0: The floodgates having opened, Anthony offered words of comfort to the poor girl. Joe once again regretted not bringing his coat, so he could have put it around her, mostly symbolically, as they were now up to the wind. Eventually, with gentle coaxing, Anthony was able to persuade Kelly to come with them, at least to the monastery where she could be in the warm with a nice cup of tea. As the girl stumbled over the stony ground towards Joe's car, he whispered aside to Brother Anthony. Didn't feel nothing holy of her. You sure it's here? Brother Anthony looked thoughtful and shook his head. Joe and Anthony conveyed the small curled-up bundle of sadness and damp down to the monastery where Anthony set her up in the sunny herb garden on a contemplative bench with a cup of tea and some freshly baked bread and honey from the monastery kitchen. Anthony reassured her that her mother would not be angry, only happy to see she was safe, and was given permission to fetch Mrs Atkinson from the village. Joe remained with the girl to keep an eye on her in case she decided to flee again. How you doing? Better, thanks. When you're elder, you'll probably laugh about all this. I remember when... Whatever Joe's impending reveries were about to be, we are not to know, for he was interrupted by a commotion from the road. When she saw who was coming, Kayleigh shrank back into the bench she was sat on. Joe, noticing this, rested a large hand on her shoulder supportively. It'll be all right. Mrs Atkinson, face still streaked with tears, appeared accompanying brother Anthony, and hurried over to embrace her daughter, fussing and crying. Her tears started Kayleigh off again. All would presumably have been well, the little family reunited. Unfortunately, matters are about to get worse, because shortly after that, a large and expensive car pulled up, and an equally large, ruddy-faced man emerged, accompanied by a very pale Noah Stevenson. Mr. Stephenson, for it was he, marched into the monastery grounds like a man very much used to going wherever he wanted to, and demanded to know which of the monks it was that had come by his house and upset his son. Noah said nothing, but looked mortifiedly at Kayleigh, at which, of course, Cayley clung desperately to her mother and started crying even harder. Brother Anthony strategically placed himself between the Atkinsons and the Stephensons, before Mr. Stephenson could turn on poor Cayley.
1: Mr. Stephenson, could I have a word? I told you, girl!
0: But we were to never find out what it was that Mr. Stephenson had told Cayley, for suddenly the mounting ruddiness drained from his face. An aura that might feasibly be described as holiness pervaded the air. It was nothing perceptible to any sense other than that of the soul, but all those present found themselves overcome by a sense of deep peace. Accompanied by that warmth that one feels after one has laughed heartily for a length of time, and are now wiping away the tears of mirth from one's eyes. Into the monastery garden swept Izzy, the girl from the shop, but it was an Izzy change from the pale and watery last Joe had seen slipping out of the Atkinson's yard. She stood straight and strong, and the crown of her head shone, and a beatific smile was upon her face. By her side walked James and John, the ancient toothless lions, as proud and golden as they must have been in their heyday. She gestured to Mr. Stevenson, and the two lions turned their heads to him as one and began to stalk towards him, bearing their long and yellowed fangs. Mr. Stevenson went as white as his son had previously been. He grabbed poor Noah and dragged him into the car, and with a spinning of wheels and a grinding of the gravel of the monastery drive, reversed away as fast as he could. Izzy watched him go, and then she laughed and laughed, and her joy echoed around the garden and made the others present laugh too. Only Brother Anthony did not laugh, but instead fell to his knees before her and asked for her blessing. She smiled at him, and repeated his words back to him, laughing again. Then she turned, and followed by the two ancient lions, walked away into the hazy air of the summer afternoon. The Pantaloon Society is a Cytogram Here production, by Lou Sutcliffe. A.M. Pronouns Distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License Brother Anthony was played by the Talented Interiority And all other voices were provided by Luce Sutler. This episode used sounds from Freesound.org For full accreditation, content warnings and transcripts Please see the show notes To be kept up to date on the show Please do follow on Twitter at Pantanoom Farewell dear audience And thank you for listening